go to your time of study. Let me see if my clicker works. Give it to me. Here we go. All right. How are y'all doing today? Good. Well, Pastor Bart, who, as uh, Scott said, isn't with us this morning, they're on a much-needed vacation together. Um, Last week, Pastor Bart introduced a new series for us called Fake News. And uh, the idea here is there's things we've grown up maybe hearing in the church or in Christian culture, and they sound right, they sound good. And we were talking last week, actually, you know, there's, there's an air of truth to all of these things, actually. Um, but on their own, they're a distortion of truth. So, so last week, Pastor Bart, the fake news that he introduced was um, suffering comes from sin. And the answer to that is maybe, but not necessarily. And so today, the topic is obedience results in prosperity. And again, the answer to that is maybe, but, but not necessarily. So with that said, I kind of feel like we're talking about, between last week and this week, the same thing, um, just from different angles. So last week, it's basically, if I'm suffering, it's because I disobeyed God. And this week, it's if I'm prospering, it's because I obeyed God, right? So we're kind of talking about the same thing, but from different angles. And I think the angles do give us something into how we think about this. And I want to begin in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's what God's commanded us to do. And this person is is in love with obeying God's commands. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. So it's this image of health, this image of resilience, the leaf doesn't wither, um, of growth and prospering in everything you do. And I think I want to begin here because there's a real truth here that's important for us, that obeying God does lead to life. It does lead to health. It does lead to prosperity. Now, the prosperity gospel basically says this. If you, have, if you just have the right kind of faith and you obey God and live faithfully, then you're going to have money in the bank. You're going to have a thriving family. You're going to have a healthy body and boundless happiness. And you can just, that's a formula. You can just count on that, right? And it's not quite so simple, is it? Um, Now, I want to look at Deuteronomy 28 in the Old Testament, because Deuteronomy 28 is this fascinating passage where basically God tells the people of Israel, living under the Mosaic law, the Torah, if you obey God's law, God's Torah, you're going to have all these blessings. And so in Deuteronomy 28, covenantal faithfulness is going to bring all these blessings, he says in verse 2. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord. And it goes on, and it's like, you're going to be blessed in the house. You're going to be blessed in the field. You're going to be blessed in your going in and your going out. You're going to be blessed. Your livestock are going to be blessed. The fruit of your wife's womb is going to be blessed. Your livestock's wombs are going to be blessed. When you go out to battle, you'll win. It's going to be awesome. Everything's going to be perfect. And verse 11 is, kind of sums it up. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, 
um, and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground, which a blessed ground and blessed livestock in agrarian society equated financial wealth. So let's, let's be honest about that. Within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. And then verse 13 says, And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall only go up and not down. I mean, what a promise. It's only upward mobility for you from here. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God, which I commanded you today, being careful to do them. Again, predicated on obedience. Now, before you think, man, this sounds awesome, there were drawbacks to living under Mosaic law if you disobeyed, a lot of them. So, um, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And what you then read you get 14 verses of blessing for covenantal obedience and 54 verses of overwhelming curses. And it's just, you're going to be blessed, you're going to be, sorry, you're going to be cursed in your house, you're going to be cursed in your field, cursed in your going in, cursed in your going out, your kneading bowl is going to be cursed, your basket's going to be cursed, your livestock's going to be cursed. I'm going to curse your wife's womb. When you go out to battle, you'll lose. You're going to build a house and people are going to come kill you and your family and live in your house. But before they do that, they're going to ravish your wife before your eyes. And then there's going to be a nation that's going to come and decimate you. But they're not, they're not just going to kill a lot of you. They'll do that. But they're also going to take you and scatter you throughout their vast empires. And you'll lose your national identity. That's the curses. <laughs> it's a lot more cursing than blessing um, in Deuteronomy 28. And um, verse 29 says, as kind of a summary, and you shall grow up at noonday as the blind grow up in darkness, and you shall not prosper in your ways, and you shall be only oppressed and robbed continually. And there will be no one to help you. And that's just a snapshot of the curses here. So you, you read 14 verses of blessing for obedience and 54 verses of cursing. And you read the first 14 verses and in contemporary terms, you feel kind of like this. And then you read the next 54 verses, and this is how you feel. And, and so you'll, some of y'all will never look at Deuteronomy 28 the same way again. Um, so again, th it may seem like there's this formula that even the Bible gives us, that if you just obey, everything's going to be prosperous for you. If you disobey, everything's going to, you're never going to prosper. Um, but even under Mosaic law, the, there really wasn't a formula. There were lots of faithful, obedient Israelites who were poor till the day of their death. And there were hundreds of years of idolatry uh, before God made good on his covenantal curse to exile them. And then only just part of the nation. Then several hundred more years of mostly idolatry transpired before God exiled the southern kingdom of Judah. And what we find, actually, is that things are more complex than some formula. What we find is basically this. In God's wisdom, he doesn't pour out every blessing on us. And in his mercy, he doesn't pour out every curse on us. And what you find in the Old Testament is they begin wrestling with this. And one of the common refrains that we hear over and over is, why do the wicked prosper? particularly in the Psalms, but really everywhere. This isn't, this isn't how it's supposed to work, God. I mean, you said 
the wicked don't prosper and the righteous do prosper. We see a lot of righteous people suffering and a lot of wicked people prospering. And, and that's the point. There's a lot more complexity to this. The, it doesn't, the prosperity gospel for, for some of the good things it might encourage us to see, it doesn't account for the complexities of life, the wisdom of God that's infinite and beyond ours, or even the mercy of God. So, here's, I want to put this up so you can just hear this. If you come to the Bible searching for a formula with which to make sense of all the good and bad of your life, your neighbor's life, or your enemy's life, the Bible will disappoint you. And I added mercilessly for dramatic effect. But it's really true. I mean, you will walk away very disappointed. It does not make sense of all the reasons why certain people, I mean, and you know it, right? I mean, you know people, it's like, man, they are, they love God. They obey. They work hard. And my life is so much easier than them, and I'm way worse than them, <laughs> right? I mean, I, I experience that kind of thing. Uh, Kate Bowler uh, was a, or is a, a professor at Duke Divinity. She did her PhD work. Um, on the prosperity gospel. And over a number of years, she flew across the country and met with most of its leaders and uh, visited many of the, the mega churches in the movement. And I want you to listen to her observations. She says this It's true that the prosperity gospel encourages people, especially its leaders, to revel in private jets and multi million dollar homes as evidence of God's love. But among the less affluent believers, I sensed a different kind of yearning, one that wasn't entirely materialistic. Believers wanted an escape from poverty, failing health, and the feeling that their lives were leaky buckets. Some people wanted Bentleys, but more wanted relief from the wounds of their, of their past and the pain of their present. People wanted salvation from bleak medical diagnoses. They wanted to see God rescue their broken teenagers or their misfiring marriages. They wanted talismans to ward off the things that go bump in the night. They wanted an iota of power over the things that ripped their lives apart at the seams. What they wanted was reassurance that if they prayed and believed and lived righteously, they would be rewarded with some measure of comfort. The prosperity gospel is a theodicy, an explanation for the problem of evil. It is an answer to the questions that take our lives apart. Why do some people get healed and some people don't? Why do some people leap and land on their feet while others tumble all the way down? Why do some babies die in their cribs and some bitter souls live to see their great-grandchildren? The prosperity gospel looks at the world as it is and promises a solution. It guarantees that faith will always make a way. If you believe and leap, you will land on your feet. And, of course, that sounds wonderful, but again, it just, it does not account for the complexities of life, the wisdom of God, or the mercy of God. Now, I want to say this. I'm really not here to beat up on the prosperity gospel. Um, I mean, I could spend the next 45 minutes, you know, like, taking shots of the prosperity gospel. Um, but if I did... Like, none of y'all would leave out, you know, walk out of here being like, I just feel so encouraged and loved by God right now. And if you did, I'd be a little worried about you. Um, but, you know, I, I think for a church like Fullness, it, it's, it can suffice to say that 
our, or your obedience does not obligate God to do anything for you. The measure of your faith doesn't like compel God to do anything for you. God is free. And I, I love this quote by N.T. Wright, who said, we are always in God's debt, and he is never in ours. And my life goes better when I remember this. <laughs> my walk with the Lord goes better when I remember this. You know, I, sometimes I hear people preach against the prosperity gospel so hard and almost like angrily um, that you kind of walk away feeling like, man, I'm not sure God intends to heal a sick person ever. <laughs> you know, like God, God doesn't care about that mountain of medical bills piling up against you or your dead-end job that you're stuck in. All God cares about is teaching lessons through suffering. And I think that message is just as much a distortion of God's character than the prosperity gospel is, actually. And so I think we need to think a little deeper about it. Both seem to be kind of promising a formula, though, I think. You know, I say this to say, I hope you don't think that prosperity is a dirty word, right? Um, and if you do, I don't want to encourage that. I mean, go back and read Psalm 1, verse 3. Um, I don't think prosperity is a dirty word at all. Um, in fact, I think that the, the you know, recent emphasis on holistic living and, and kind of that kind of thing is only a, a good thing. In fact, I, if you Google that, that, which I did this week, holistic, healthy living or whatever, lots of stuff comes up, you know, everything from stress relieving, breathing exercises to what does your poop say about you. <laughs> and um, I... I I just want to say, I think that's, you know, some of it's undocumented, but a lot of stuff out there is, you know, clinically proven to have health benefits. And I don't think Christians should, like, avoid that, right? Aren't we supposed to take care of our temple? Um, and so, you know, for me, when I think about, you know, if someone's sitting in my office and maybe they're telling me, like, Gabriel, like, I just wake up every day and I go to this soul-crushing job. I come home stressed out of my mind and I'm terrible to my family. Um, I don't tell them, you know, I, I tell them, like, maybe you should look for a new job if you can. I don't tell them, stay there as long as you can and get every nugget God has for you. And don't even think about leaving, right, until you get all the, all the gold from suffering or something like that. Like, you know, I mean, if <laughs> some of you need to listen to what your poop's telling you. <laughs> maybe change your diet. Um, you know, I mean, if <laughs> sleep deprivation's really bad, Maybe try to get some more sleep at night. Put your phone away. Blue light's not really helpful for that. Stress is terrible for your body. It causes, and we're finding out so much about how awful stress is for the human body. Terrible for your mind. Maybe try to de-stress a little bit. I, mean, I, I think that for too long, Christians have just kind of like taken in the wounded and given them some Instagrammable Bible verses and sent them on their way when Really what they needed to maybe do was go to counseling and work through some of the trauma of their past and the trauma of their present. Um, so in no way am I saying <laughs> we should think of prosperity as a bad thing. Um, and I don't think God encourages us to think of it as a bad thing. You know, at the end of the day, you, what you want is prosperity. You want to feel close and connected to your spouse, which is why I'm so excited about this mentoring thing we're going to be doing. You want, you want good things for your kids. Um, you want 
You want a healthy body. You want a job that's fulfilling, or if not fulfilling, at least gives your family the provision you need. Um, and even though, you know, but the, even in that, there, there's no guarantees, but you still want the prosperity, right? And I think that's not a bad desire. It's a good desire. Now, we also need to keep in mind that you can work really hard and make great choices and still struggle to pay your bills, maybe for the rest of your life. Actually, happens all the time. I know that I know of many people where that's their case. You can invest in your marriage and still wind up divorced. You can train up a child in the way that he or she should go, and they may still depart from it when they grow old. More on that in our Proverbs summer series that will tease out verses like that. Um, all that to say, but we still want to pursue these things, and that's right that we do so. I want to come back to Psalm 1 again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, and all that he does, he prospers. Obedience is God's way towards prosperity. But again, we have to trust him, trust that he knows best. We will not always get the answers of why we get the outcomes we get. Psalm 1, I think, finds a beautiful parallel in the New Testament to John 15, which is another passage where you have this plant metaphor connected to the life of loving obedience. And so Jesus, in John 15, 5, says, I am the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, which is a little offensive to some of the doers in the room. I get that. Verse 8 says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And here's the obedience component. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So again, we have these, the Bible gives us these, these plant metaphors of these images of health and prosperity and growth and resilience. Um, and it's connected to a life of loving obedience, both Old and New Testament. It is. Um, and I don't know what you guys think of when you think of obedience. You know, I, unfortunately, I've spent enough time in the church world where I, I think when people hear like a phrase like, or if a preacher stands up and says, obey God, then there's like maybe five to ten things that pop up in your mind. You know, maybe like, okay, I guess that he's saying I need to pray more, read my Bible more. Maybe he's saying I need to fast. He's probably saying I need to fast. And I need to, you know, do this. And, and if you're a guy, it always means you need to stop looking at porn. And we have like five things that we think of, of what obedience to God looks like. And for me, I don't know how you guys think about it, but for me, obedience to God is just going through my day-to-day -day life, seeking to please my Father in thought, word, and deed. I don't make it any more complex than that. Um, maybe, maybe you do, and that's fine. It would do what works for you, but I think that's basically what the Bible says. Obedi a life of obedience is one that in your day-to-day -day life, this is, this is what I do. I just say, God, I want to please you in my thoughts my words and my deeds, and I don't make it any more complicated 
than that. That's abiding. That's loving abiding. Uh, John 15, 7, though, you guys are about to think I'm about to become a prosperity gospel preacher. But I'm not going to avoid the verse, right? John 15, 7 says, if you abide in me, my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Well, that sounds like the prosperity gospel, right? And, and I get it. And, and this is actually where I feel like the tension is helpful because we don't want to fall on either sides of these distortions of God. God cares, God cares about your desires. Um, now, none of us wish for trouble, right? None of us say, okay, I'm abiding and I'm living in God and my wish is for trouble. None of us do that. But as Pastor Bart reminded us last week, you're promised trouble, which is what Jesus says almost in the same breath on the same night he was betrayed in the very next chapter. In the world, you'll have trouble. So on the same night, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish. None of us wish for trouble. And then he says, oh, but you're promised trouble, right? So, sir, so clearly we don't get everything we wish for, right? unfortunately, but also fortunately because God knows and he's good. And I think, I think the lesson here is this, is that obedient, loving, abiding is, a, is this journey of seeing our wish for ourselves align with God's wish for ourselves in trusting him, trusting him in that place. One of the things that John 15, 7 tells me is that the things you wish for matter profoundly. Your, your desires, your dreams, they matter. And part of why they matter is they're a really good indicator of, of who you are. And your desires are really a reflection of, of who you are, of what you want from this world, what you want to be, what you want your life to be like. Um, and they tell me, they tell us about who we are. Um, Good and bad, by the way. I was, by the way, I was, so I was reading um, uh, Rome, I mean, 1 Corinthians about two months ago. And as I was reading through the letter, um, I came to chapter 14, verse 1, and I just got stopped in my tracks by the Holy Spirit on uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, which says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And I, I just said, Lord, I, I think I'm pursuing love in my life. But if I'm honest, I'm not earnestly desiring prophecy. And, and I just had that real moment with the Lord. And I was like, God, but I, I want to. I mean, I, I, I want this. I want to earnestly. And I, that, this verse is so clear. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And he highlights prophecy, especially that you may prophesy. And I said, Lord, I want to prophesy. I want to, I want to hear your words for people and partner with you and, and speak your words to people. And I just... If I'm honest, I just don't really, I don't earnestly desire that. Um, so, um, but I kind of came into this place where I was like, Lord, I want this. I want this. And, you know, for five days, I was just like, Lord, like, I want to hear your words. I want it. God, open up my heart. I want to prophesy. I want to prophesy. And I just felt that fervently for five days. Just five days. And totally forgot about it. And uh, about a month later, I was laying in bed one night, and I just, like, remembered, oh, yeah, 1 Corinthians 14.1. I used to really want to prophesy, <laughs> like, a few weeks ago. 
And, um, and I just had this grace to pray come on me, and I was just like, it was really strong. I was like, Lord, I want to prophesy. And my, I mean, my desire just rose to heaven um, as I was laying in my bed. I want, to, I want to hear your words. I want to speak your words. And I want to be a part of you loving someone else um, in that way. And, and obviously, there's many ways to love people with God. But in that way. Um, and, and that night, I had a dream. And in that dream, uh, a, a friend of mine, a girl I knew from high school, who I'm really not in great touch with now, um, but who got married this past summer. In, in my dream, uh, the gist of the dream was her husband was still learning how to see her as not just a strong woman, but also as a gentlewoman. And so the next morning, I woke up, and I texted my friend. And I said, hey, I had this dream last night that your, your new husband's still learning to see you as not just a strong woman, but also as a gentlewoman. Don't know if this resonates, but I thought I'd just share it with you. And you know, she texted me back and said, this resonates so much. We had a fight this morning, and since then I've been praying and asking the Lord to show me his perspective of me. And I was just like, oh, thank you, Lord. And, um, but it was so telling to me that like, it was birthed out of my desire. It was birthed out of my yoking myself to, to 1 Corinthians 14.1, but just God, God being moved by my desires. Now, I, I wish I could say that it was only my godly, beautiful, wonderful desires that told me who I am. Um, you know, as, as 1 John 1, 2, uh, or 1 John 2 says, the, you know, the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, uh, those reveal what's going on in us too. You know, my, my desire to be honored or whatever it may be is a helpful reminder that I'm God's still working on me. Um, but I want God. I, I want him. I want, I want to live a life where, I don't know about you guys, I, I want to live a life where I'm connected to him, living in this loving, organic obedience. And um, you do too. Um, I want to just affirm you in that. You guys want God, maybe even more than you're aware you're hungrier for God than you give yourself credit for. I think we all are, actually. Gerald May said this, Though we seldom recognize it, and that being the key word, our senses seek the beauty, the sweetness, the good feelings of God. Our mind seeks the truth and wisdom of God. Our will seeks to live out the goodness, the righteousness of God. Our memory and imagination seek the justice and peace of God. In other words, we yearn for the attributes of God with every part of ourselves. Human beings are two-legged, walking, talking desires for God. You know, sometimes I've heard people kind of take this tact of like, if you guys really wanted God, you would fill in the blank. I mean, if you really, you say you want God, but you don't. Your actions prove you don't want God. If you really wanted God, you would do X. And X is something I'm really passionate about, so you should do X too. That's a, sometimes how this is posited. And not only do I think that's totally unhelpful and kind of condemning, I don't even think it's true. I think you guys want God. You want a life, don't you, where you're connected to the vine. We were living in this organic, loving way of being. 
You want that. And I know that not just because I know some of you personally, and that's your heart. I believe this is in you, especially if you're in Christ. You, this is what you want for yourselves. Now, I think it's important. I'm getting preachy now, y'all. Um, I think it's important that we acknowledge there, there is a difference between wanting and seeking, right? Uh, Psalm 14, verse 2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who live wisely, is the Hebrew word, who seek after God. Now, there's a, there is a difference between just simply wanting to live that kind of life and living intentionally to seek him. But I want to affirm you guys today, you guys are hungrier than you give yourselves credit for, and those desires really matter. Those wishes of your heart really matter in a John 15, 7 kind of way. And as you partner with him in loving obedience, God breathes on that. I think seeking God is connected to what we mean by uh, abiding in God because we are to live connected. And usually, oftentimes, abiding in God will mean laying down the illusion of control in your life. That I am in control of this marriage I'm in. Control of my career. Control of my toddlers. Control of my own happiness, right? A recent psychological survey came out in which uh, they estimated that the average person living in the West has about 15% of the control over their life they think they do. And you can kind of grind against that and rage against that and maybe like notch it up to 17% and feel really good about yourselves. But really at the end of the day, we are far less in control than we think we are. And that's either really depressing to you or maybe liberating, and hopefully the latter. Ignatius of Loyola said this, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a more loving response to our life forever with God. Our only desire and our one choice should be this. I want and choose what better leads to God's deepening life in me. So good, right? So good. Easier said than done. Especially if you or someone you love is maybe living with chronic pain, which I've never lived with. So far be it from me to stand in any kind of judgment of someone who is. Or whatever other kind of thing we desperately wish we could control in our lives. But you know, one thing that I've seen is that you will be amazed at how much more active God is in your life when you lay down the illusion that you're in control. This has been a journey that I've been in over the past few years. I used to think God wasn't doing very much in my life. And as I let go of some of the sense of my control and the illusion of that control, I see God moving all over in my life. Like, you'd be amazed at how much easier prayer becomes when we lay this down. Um, Samuel Chadwick said this, Hurry is the death of prayer. 
And I heard this quote about a year ago. And I heard it, and I, for the, about the past year, I've been kind of running this quote against the backdrop of my own life and kind of testing it against the backdrop of my own life. And I've just seen how true this is, that in, in seasons over the past year when I've been just hurried from thing to thing to thing to thing, and in my mind, like, it just kills prayer in my heart. But if there's space in my mind and in my heart, then prayer can live. Prayer can live. Um, I was in the shower uh, this week, and I was standing there, and I was just like, my mind was racing through all the things I have to do. And I was like, okay, I, I got to send that email to those students who've been asking for that presentation I did. Okay, I got to get them that. And um, I still got to get childcare for a small group after church on Sunday. And I got to preach Sunday, and I've also got to meet with that person, called them back. Uh, at some point, I got to mow the lawn this week. If Jordan mows the lawn and my neighbors see, how many man points will I lose? And I'm just, you know, thinking through this in my mind. Not that I make my wife mow the lawn. Um, she could totally do it, by the way. But um, all that to say, I'm just racing. And I had this moment where I realized, okay, but right now, all I can do is take a shower. So I'm going to take a shower. And then I said, hi, Lord. <laughs> Like my, immediately, my heart lifted to God. That's where my heart went. And then I got out of the shower, and then immediately all that to-do list came back on me. And I said, well, but right now, all I can do is brush my teeth. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brush my teeth. And I just said, thank you, Lord. Thank you for helping create space. And I don't know how active God feels in your life right now. I don't know how much prosperity you feel like you're living in or how much suffering you feel like you're living in. Um, maybe you're in a place where you just, you don't see God moving at all um, in your life. You can't make any sense of why things are happening um, or where he went or if he's doing anything at all. Uh, the mystic from the Middle Ages, John of the Cross, referred to that as the dark night of the soul. These seasons that you and I go through where the main idea is that God's activity and presence in our life becomes obscured and we can't make sense of why our life has turned out the way it has and how God could in any way, shape, or form have been a part of this in a positive way. And it usually is connected to suffering. It's often connected to um, loneliness and depression. And oftentimes the things that uh, even good things, even spiritual practices that once were so life-giving just feel tasteless and dull and, and worthless to you. And you don't know how to find God in the midst of it. Um, we, we find ourselves in these places at times. And John of the Cross's whole point was that God's actually doing this. And the point is that God is liberating your heart from attachments that you can be more free to love him and others sometimes even religious attachments. I, don't, I was uh, praying for you guys this week. I was pacing in the parking lot over here under the Bradford Pears, and uh, I just kind of heard the Lord say, um, tell them that if some of you guys are suffering from depression, that it's not because of your disobedience. So if that's you, receive that. Um, you know, 
maybe it's just me, but I think some of the authors of Scripture suffered from bouts of depression. Have you ever read the book of Ecclesiastes? And major portions of Jeremiah? <laughs> um, we need to take some of the stigma off of that, I think. Pastor Bart shared this quote last week, and I loved it. Uh, Paul Bilheimer, who I have no clue who that is, said this. <laughs> God is willing to be misunderstood in the universe he has made in order to achieve his purpose of character development. I love that. And I really believe that, too. God is always working. You know, um, I, uh, I don't always believe everything I should as strongly as I should. You know, there's probably things in the Bible that you guys have a much easier time believing than I do, to my shame. Um, but I really believe this one. <laughs> I really believe this one, that God is always working on me. God's always working on you. And I don't know if you feel the gravity of that statement, because no matter how you spend your Monday through Friday, let's say, or your weekend, God is always working. I mean, some of us maybe grew up in the church, this could be another fake news topic, um, where with this idea that like there's, there's uh, you know, sacred jobs, which is what Christian ministers and church staff and missionaries get, and there's secular jobs, which I don't like that divide too much anyway, but there's, there's sacred and secular jobs, and, and if you have to work the secular job in the marketplace, then there's basically two justifications for what you do with most of your life, and either you are leading your coworkers to Christ, or you are making money to give to your church. And those are the only two justifications for what, for what you do with most of your, your work week, basically, right? And there's something much more beautiful, much more creative going on here, because regardless of whether or not you are in your dream job, God is working on you. God's work on you and I has nothing to do with these things. I mean, it really does change everything. It's not to say he doesn't care or whatever else, but it is to say that God is about the school of your life, not this one awesome season where all of your wishes come true. Um, I'll end with this. Eugene Peterson, you know, well-known well pastor of many years, he passed away recently. He had this policy, which I think is super cool, where if anyone wrote him a handwritten, handwritten letter, uh, then he would write them a letter back. And so most days his mailbox was, was filled with letters. And um, he would get these letters and respond to basically all of them. And uh, sometimes he'd write a full page or two pages and a really long response. Otherwise, he'd write a short little paragraph. And at one point, someone wrote him a letter basically saying, like, I go to this church. I hate the hymns. I don't even want to sing them. Like, what is your advice to me? And this is, the names have been changed, but this is, the, this is what Eugene Peterson wrote back. Dear Gunner, no, you don't have to like the hymns, and yes, you do need to sing them. Hopefully an approximate tune and rhythm with the rest. <laughs> it's an excellent exercise in humility. The peace of the Lord, Eugene. I love that. You got to sing the hymns and do the best you can to sing on tune. I mean, there's so much depth in this curt little response, isn't there, of, of what our life is to be and how God is at work in the midst of it.
whether you're in a season of great prosperity or no prosperity. And in the season, in the spirit of Peterson, I'm going to give you his, his translation of John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relation intimate and organic, the harvest is sure to be abundant. I wanted to end on that note of abundance. Separated, you can't produce a thing. I'm excited about, I'm going to go invite the team up. And um, I'm excited about Cindy is going to read a prayer that she just kind of has come out of the soil of her own life. And she's dialogued with the Lord this week. And after that, we'll go back into worship together. Just join with me, and we're going to pray together. Thank you, Lord, that your desire is that we prosper. Lord, show us what true prosperity is in you. I pray that we would seek your face, and we would seek the true riches in Christ. May we know the riches of your glory and the riches of your grace. I pray that we would know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, and so be filled with all the fullness of God. May we, we be filled with the knowledge of you and your love. I pray that we would obey from a heart of love. Empower us to live a life of loving obedience. Forgive us, God, when we have asked for things instead of seeking your face. May we abide in your love. Lord, I pray that we would abide in you and your words abide in us. Will you mold our hearts and shape our desires, that our desires would be your desires, and that you would give us the desires of our heart. You see our desires, our hopes, our dreams, needs. We trust you, God. We trust you with all that we are and all we hope to be. We trust you with the desires of our heart. We trust you with our hopes and our dreams. I pray for us those of us today whose hopes and dreams have been shattered, we invite you, God, to come into those broken pieces of our hearts where we feel lost and hopeless and alone. I thank you, God, that like the potter, you gather these broken shards of clay and you skillfully, lovingly 
places back on the potter's wheel, molding and making us with your hands into the vessel of your will and desire. You are the potter. We are the clay. All of us are the work of your hand. We ask for your forgiveness, God, in the places in our lives where we have strayed from your heart. Forgive us, O oh God. We pray for freedom from condemnation and thank you that your ability to heal, to restore, and to redeem is greater than our mistakes. We thank you, Lord, that you have not forgotten us. You have not forsaken us. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O oh God. For those today who are discouraged and confused because you have walked in obedience and yet you have been met with many challenges and much suffering. And we ask, God, that you would fill us with your love. Fill us with your love, O oh God. Fill us with your peace. The peace that passes all understanding, that we are yours. We are yours. Lord, we desire to be conformed into your image. May our lives bring glory to your name. We acknowledge that you are a sovereign and loving God. We trust you. We trust you. the potter. We are the clay.